0: Week we began chapter 17 of 1 Samuel and that famous story about David and Goliath. You know the one, right? The one where everybody likes to insert themselves. Uh, we, we, we're, whatever difficulty we're facing in life becomes our Goliath and we become David. So we, we took some time last week to just destroy that way of thinking about the Bible that puts us in the hero role and puts our problems in the villain role. Because Jesus is the hero of the Bible, and Satan and sin are the villains that we're opposed to, and we have been rescued and redeemed. You know what that makes us? The helpless princess. <laughs> Had that little, little awakening this week. Going, oh yeah, we're the we're the princess that gets rescued. So that's the, we're the bride of Christ. You can't make this stuff up, right? So it's it's really legit. Uh, we we walk through an explanation of the Nephilim, who, they, who and what they are, where they came from. We took some time to fact check the idea that David was a little boy in this chapter, and we'll reinforce that today. He's not a little boy. Um, and ultimately, we came to two big conclusions last Sunday. We said that the Lord calls us as his people to live by faith in the Son of God, and that it's all about Jesus. It's really just all about Jesus. So uh, that kind of gets us caught up. If you missed last week, if you weren't with us, go back watch the video. If you weren't here, uh, but as I thought about this week, I thought I thought about the lives that have impacted me on my spiritual journey. Um, to, to you know, from from new believer uh, in high school to to Christian to um, to mature believer to full time ministry, and all these these different people that have had impact along the way. And I was thinking about. Um, the one man I feel like God used probably more than anybody else to impact my life as a 20-something was a man named Bob Dukes. And I and I know I've mentioned him before. Bob was, and, and still is, a great Bible teacher, an incredible disciple maker. Um, and, and even to this day, I find myself wanting to be around him and wanting to be more like him. When we were in Georgia uh, in January, I, I was able to get just a few hours with Bob. And it was just such a blessing to my heart. He's that kind of person. Um, But Bob has this love for saying things the way English was originally spoken, not the dumbed-down way that we use today as Americans. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Just as an aside, I I was reading this week, Siri, our English is so bad in the U.S. that Siri, Apple's AI, has learned English parlance from all of us, and she's actually dumber because of it. Because the way that Americans speak English is so bad. Um, so so don't, don't if you don't believe me, just try to audio dictate your next text or your next email to your iPhone and see how confused and how many different words than you intended end up in that text or in that email. It, it's, it's just crazy. It's a result of how poorly Americans speak English. But, but Bob would always be using these phrases that nobody used anymore. He was, he was a fan of phrases that were out of vogue. And one particular phrase, which at the time I, I figured had to be from the Bible, and I guessed right, he would say, With the Lord, we will do valiantly. Who says that? Who says that? To a, to a, a room full of college students in Sunday school. Bob was the guy. He would say that. He did say that. With the Lord, we will do valiantly. And did I mention that Bob has an extensive basement full of old books and collections of arrowheads and swords on the wall? Now you're starting to get a picture of what's influenced me, if you, know, if you know anything about my office, right? Such a cool dude. But I remember that phrase he would use always made me a little embarrassed because it was so old, and it was just not in use. But, the, but the, more than the weirdness of that phrase, it kind of made something in my heart perk up. Do you know what I mean by when your heart perks up? Like, like, um, what would be a good example? Like when you're watching the charge of the Rohirrim and the return of the king, and they sound their horns, and your heart just goes, oh, yeah, you know? How many of you knew that there'd be a Lord of the Rings reference? Right? It's just, that's what I mean by your heart perking up. It was something stirring in the spirit, though I, I didn't fully understand it at the time. And Bob would say, with the Lord, we will do valiantly. Something going on here. I, I just couldn't quite understand it. Valiance is possessing or showing courage and determination. It, it, it's a strength of mind. It's a strength of spirit that enables a person to encounter danger with firmness and, and resolve in their hearts. It makes me think of the words of the Lord to Joshua after Moses died in Joshua 1, verse 6 and 7. The Lord's given Joshua the pep talk because, because Moses is gone now. You can't lean on somebody you can see. You're going to have to lean fully into me, the unseen God. And he says, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only Joshua... For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's that same courage exuded by the English missionary C.T. Studd when he wrote these words expressing the passion of his heart. He said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's that's valiance. It's courage with faith and resolve. It's a heart that says, I'm going to let the Lord use me, whatever the outcome. Whatever the outcome. And here in 1 Samuel 17, we see that the same David, who would write many of the Psalms and become the king of Israel, is standing up to a giant valiantly. In the Spirit of God. So let's look at the text this morning. First Samuel 17. We're starting in verse 24. We we took the first twenty-three verses last week. So let's look at verse 24 here. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, when they saw Goliath, they fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, the first thing I want to say here is that fear and, and poor morale go hand in hand. When, when you're in a conflict like this and one side is losing badly, hope begins to slip away. And you can muster the troops, you can rally the troops, but the more fear there is among the ranks, the lower morale will plummet. And this has been going on for 40 days now, right? This is 40 days of Goliath coming out, challenging somebody to fight, and, and, and just just hearing crickets. Nobody's, nobody's moving, nobody's answering, nobody wants to be mistaken for the guy who said, yeah, I'll fight you, right? Just... just Everybody's kind of cowering. You can muster the troops, but when fear is when fear's rampant, morale is low. I, we see this, uh, the reports. I was just looking uh, yesterday at the reports of the Russian troops in Ukraine uh, who thought it'd be a cakewalk. <laughs> Sorry, surprise. Uh, by the way, I'm not picking any sides in the conflict. There's still a lot that we don't know. But um, we, we can see how this fear of Goliath is causing morale just to go down in the fighting men of Saul's army. And Saul's strategy here is let's dangle some rewards as an incentive. Maybe that'll get somebody motivated to go out and fight this giant. And in verse 25, the term free means that the family of the person who kills the giant will never pay taxes. I know, right? I know. I don't know what the tax rate was back then, but I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal by today's standards. I mean, plus riches, plus the status of marrying into the king's family. Um, and that's not a bad strategy, as strategies go, so long as your guy or your, your army has a decent chance to win. But the prospect of single combat with a 9-9 descendant of the Nephilim is altogether another story. right? So they need a man who's convinced down deep in his heart that the unseen God of Israel is greater than the giant of Gath that they all can see. And David is that man. And so, verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, Well, What's, what should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David's not all righteous indignation, nor is he all about personal gain for killing Goliath. The reality is there's a blend here. But while his motive is not, not ultimately personal gain, still he's, he's not going to pass up on the reward, Right and and there's there's our new what we said last week our high cultured um insult from verse 26 Goliath would actually in reality be an uncircumcised Philistine. So if you want to just make that your new like insult just you uncircumcised Philistine, right? Use that at your own risk. Uh verse 28 uh Eliab his oldest brother heard him when he was speaking to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. You just want to see carnage. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So you've got Eliab's anger against David, which is somewhat understandable in the flesh. And by that I mean it's relatable. If you're not thinking from a biblical perspective, it's probable that Eliab is scared just like every other soldier in Israel standing on that battlefield. It's even more likely that upon hearing his little brother, his younger brother, asking around about what kind of rewards are available for the guy who kills the giant, that uh, Eliab feels indignant and, and angry at his younger brother. His own pride is hurt here. His own pride is hurt. His little bro would, th- would be thinking about taking a run at a giant when none of the other sons of Jesse have stepped up. That's, that's got to sting a little bit. And it's clear that in his anger, Eliab's ascribing wrong motive to David. He's like, you just come here to watch and not help. It's basically Eliab's assumption. And we all know what happens when we assume. If you've taken driver's head, you know that, right? It's first day one on the board. <laughs> I love that. Could it be that Eliab is troubled by his own cowering more than he is troubled by David's courage? I think so. But while Eliab is offended, Saul hears about this and he's hopeful finally somebody who's willing to step up. And David's encouragement to the king is essentially, don't be afraid of this Philistine. God's got this. I love that about David. So look at verse 33 here. Let's keep going. Saul said to David, you are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, And it took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. You are but a youth. You are but a youth. Man, if you're in the room this morning and you're under 25, I want you to just look right here. You have more energy and vigor than most of the other people in this room. And yeah, and all the all the older guys are, hmm, yeah. You may not have a lot of experience. And you may not know firsthand the heartbreak and disappointment that many of us know in life and in ministry. But listen to me, that is a unique gift to you in this season of your life. Um, You have fervor and you have energy and you have passion. Turn it all towards God's kingdom agenda. Turn it all towards his kingdom agenda. You will learn restraint, I promise you. The Holy Spirit, if he's at all involved in your life, you will learn restraint. You will learn balance, young Padawan. I promise. Let your youth and your energy be used for God's purposes in this season of your life, not waiting around to get put in in the fourth quarter. Please see me today. If that's you, if you're here, don't, don't, don't leave, leave today without talking to me. Something's stirring in your heart. Man, I just really want to be involved in God's kingdom work. Let's, let's talk about that. This, this is exactly what's happening here. David's not going to let his youth and, and relative inexperience keep him from engaging in what God wants him to do. When we get back to David here, this is where some commentators get the notion that David's a little boy in this passage, but they're wrong. And we established that earlier in the chapter that David's been a man of war for some time now. He may be young compared to many of the men in the army, but he's not a child. In fact, David gives some of his resume to Saul. He's like, yeah, I've killed bears, I've killed lions, giant? Yeah, not a problem. We got that. And so 36, verse 36 here gives us this linchpin of David's courage and assurance. This, is the, this Philistine abomination has defied and cursed the armies of the living God. Men and women, that's the same as cursing God himself. When God sets up a representative and you curse the representative, you're cursing God. When, when, a, when a four a king Of a nation sends a representative, and and that representative is insulted. The king takes it personally. Okay, so so this is this is the same as cursing God himself. David has the utmost confidence that God wants this blasphemous abomination dealt with, and David is perfectly willing to be used for God's purposes. So in verse thirty-eight, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped the sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Now, <clears throat> note here. This is not a matter of the armor being too, too big for David. That's not what the text says. This is a common mistake. I see I see, I see in VeggieTales all the time. You got little bitty David trying to put on this big breastplate, you know, and it's like five times too big. That's not what's happening in the text. That's not what's happening. The issue is not really how the armor fits on David at all. The issue is that the armor is not something David's accustomed to wearing, and he recognizes that's going to be a liability, not a help. I'm more accustomed to fighting in this way. I'm more comfortable like this. I'm going to do it this way, okay? Okay. So verse 40, he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. So I love this verse, dearly love this verse, because it shows in no uncertain terms the incredible faith and trust that David had in the Lord. He's going out there in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt with a sling to fight a nine-foot, nine-inch giant covered in armor from head to toe. That's incredible. I love this. He goes down into the wadi, and he, and he gathers five smooth stones. And then some, somebody always inadvertently in, in conversation will object and say, well, if David really had faith, why did he get five stones? Why not just one? Well, let me tell you the answer to that question. Because we find in 2 Samuel 21 and in 1 Chronicles 20 uh, that uh, Lami was a brother of Goliath. And, and, and the verses from 2 Samuel are more ambiguous, um, but the King James speaks of four brothers who were the sons of a, quote, man in 2 Samuel 21, who was known as the giant in Gath. So the giant in Gath had four sons, one of whom was Goliath. And then one of the four was Saph. We know that 2 Samuel 21. The other two must have been Lami from First from Chronicles. And then the fourth one, we don't know what the name of him is. But according to these verses, Goliath had a total of three brothers, and then add dad back in, and you got five giants to deal with. David's ready for any eventuality. He's got five stones, one for each giant. That is chutzpah. That is valiant. Verse 41. The Philistine moved forward, came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance the philistine said to david am i a dog that you come at me with sticks and the philistine cursed david by his gods the philistine said to david come to me i will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field so so just just picture this right you've got the armies lined up face to face this valley in between goliath has come forward david is coming forward and into that the ring announcer michael buffer steps out of nowhere and says let's get ready to rumble right and the giant is offended at david and goliath has disdained david and he's expecting some seasoned man of war some older bigger armor-wearing sword-wielding person but that's not what he got goliath's prevailing attitude seems to be this is this is totally beneath me nevertheless he's happy to kill david now having been insulted by him. And, and so the promise of giving one's flesh to the birds and the beasts speaks of being denied the honor of burial, by the way. Um, so then verse 45, David says to the Philistine, Hey, you coming at me with a sword? It's, it's almost like he's from New York. Hey, you coming at me with a sword? Hey. hey, with a spear and a javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. (laughs) David's response is so awesome. It's so good. It's all about somebody coming in their own name. Right, in your own reputation, in your own strength. And, and David's saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not coming in my reputation. I'm not coming in my strength. David expands his intentions beyond Goliath's defeat. And, and, he, and now he's dealing with the whole Philistine army. We're going to kill all you guys. This, the purpose of this is explicit. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Yahweh, the one true and living God. And that this assembly, everybody who's gathered here today would know that the Lord doesn't need human weapons or human help to do what he's going to do. He saves by the sheer power of his might and his will. And as a clear demonstration, he's going to use a young man of war without armor, without sword, without spear to defeat and kill this intimidating champion of the Philistines. The battle belongs to the Lord. So verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in his forehead. The the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. He deliberately... Hindered his own efforts here. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight. I'm not gonna try to match this guy. I'm just gonna do what I know to do, and I'll let the Lord work this out. And this blow uh, from the rock incap- incapacitated Goliath, at the very least knocked him unconscious, did probably serious damage to him. And then, verse fifty-one, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword from him, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their, their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on their way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem to put and put his armor in his tent. So so David used the giant's own sword to decapitate him. And now there's no doubt that Goliath is dead. Whether the stone killed him or whether the the beheading killed him, he's dead. He's, he's done. So that also means um, there's shaming now of the defeated enemy, even more so into perpetuity. Um, when you use the enemy's weapon to kill the enemy, that's shameful in battle, right? So, so that so David didn't have a sword. So it might have just been simply the case he was just using what was available. But I think there's some. Some deliberate shaming of the Philistines here. Um, this unexpected turn of events completely dismays and, and routes the Philistine army. So the Israelites pursue them and then, and then finish it off by plundering their camp coming back. So whatever they had that was worth anything, they, they took for themselves. And then we'll just wrap up this chapter 55 to 58. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander, commander of the army, Hey, Abner, whose, whose son is that youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down, the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So another point of misunderstanding here in this section that's really common Casual readers of the text will sometimes take Saul's question to mean that Saul did not know who David was. But that's ridiculous. Because we've already established in the text that David is Saul's armor bearer. He knows who he is. Uh, A careful reading here reveals that Saul's question is not about David's identity. It's about his family. Specifically his father. I want to know who his father is. This is likely linked to Saul's gratitude, his desire to pour out thanks and honor on David and on his family, especially his father. So that's the biblical non-veggie tale story of David and Goliath. Okay, so there's so many things like that in the Old Testament, especially that that well-meaning, well-intending Sunday school teachers have have kind of, or or, or Phil Fisher in this case has kind of put into the story for us. But when we read it carefully, we can see. What actually happened. And we know many years later, um, as king of Israel, David would pen so many Psalms. But uh, I was really especially drawn to Psalm 108 this week because David is instructing future generations on how to praise God. It's making sure that the generations to come have good handholds for how to engage in the worship of the living God. And he states that those who praise God need to do it out of a heart of steadfastness. Or uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's this idea of a fixed heart. Your heart is fixed. It's, it's not moving. It's, it's stationary. It's, it's, it's focused. It's a strength of mind or strength of spirit that enables a person to encounter the unknown with firmness and resolve and ultimately steadfast in their trust of God. And and what David shows us is a man after God's own heart. God desires not only a steadfast heart, but he wants our whole heart. He wants our whole heart. And that decision to relinquish our hearts to God fully is birthed out of our will. See, we make this mistake. We're we're so rooted as Americans in our emotions. We're led by our impulses. And what the Word of God says is this decision to relinquish your heart to God is an act of the will your emotions can aid in that process. They can also hinder. But it's an act of the will. Let's, listen. I'm going to read to you this morning Psalm 108 with some commentary here so you can see what I mean. This is David writing this. He says, My heart is steadfast. O oh God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. So David's trust and confidence in God are really high. And the overflow of his confidence in the Lord is worship unto the Lord. So he says in verse 2, Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. It's still dark yet. I can't wait for it to be daylight so I can go and talk to people about Jesus. Right? Well, David wasn't talking about Jesus. We, we should be talking about Jesus. David is that Christian friend or, your, or the mom in your house or the dad in your house or whoever you've got in your life that we all have who is awake when it's still dark and they're singing worship songs at 5 a.m., before you've even had coffee. You know who I'm talking about, right? We all know that person. This is is David. He's like, I'm going to awake the dawn. I can't wait for the day to start. I get to walk with the one true and living God, singing praises. Verse 3 says, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I'll sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. David affirms that praise and worship of God are right and good, and he highlights God's steadfast love. It's unwavering, he says. His faithfulness. God never, never makes a promise that he doesn't follow through on. He keeps all his promises. And in verse 5 and 6, he says, so be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones, that's you, by the way, you and me, we, we might be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. So now the request comes. Now David's making a request here, and, and we're not explicitly told what it is in addition to being exalted, but we can deduce from the next text it has to do with preserving Israel. Look at, look at verses 7, 8, and 9. God has promised in his holiness with exaltation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab, that's the wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. God's saying, all the land belongs to me. And even the land of the enemies of God's people belong to me. I'm over all of that. I'm over all of that. And verse 10, who will bring me into the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us the help we need against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So David just freely admitting here that without God they can do nothing. With and through God they could win great victories and accomplish great things. But the victory belongs to the Lord. It's he who shall tread down our enemies. Israel's priority was to praise and to worship the Lord God and to bring themselves into right relationship with him. He was going to do the rest. And we need to go to God's word for our definitions of success and failure when it comes to the Christian life. We need to go to God's word, not, not, not man's word. See, success, when it comes to being a Christian, success is simply walking in faith. It manifests, when we walk in faith, it manifests in obedience to God. Success is not winning every battle. Please hear me. I don't know what you're struggling with right now. Success is not winning every battle. Success in God's economy is listening to the Lord and engaging when He says to engage and then abstaining when He says to abstain. Success is obedience, it's not winning every battle. It's faithful obedience to the Lord. Success is walking in faith, not based on what we can see with our eyes. That's success. That's God's definition of success for us. And then on the inverse, failure. Failure is not failing to accomplish the task. Failure is is not engaging in, in with the task. Failure is when we just don't even engage with what God said to do. It's it. I don't know. I've talked to some of you personally in in the last couple of weeks, and I've asked this question: Does it feel like I I smack you in the head with the Great Commission every week? And some people who I just love dearly have been really honest and say, "Yeah, it kind of feels like that." But I need it. I need it. I need that reminder. I need to be knocked upside the head every once in a while. See, failure is 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 not engaging with what God has said for us to do. That's failure. It's not trying and being unable to see it come to fruition. It's, it's not even trying. That's failure. Disobedience is failure. Abdication is failure. Giving more weight to our fear of people, and letting, letting that keep us from sharing Jesus, that's failure. So we need to redefine success and failure in terms of God's, God's definitions. And, and so what we've got to do is, I'm going to just give you three handholds for this this morning as we wrap this up. We have to decide to be courageous. You need to understand, that's a decision of the will. It's not rooted in your emotions. Your, your courage is not rooted in your emotions. And it can't be rooted in your circumstances. It has to be an act of the will. It, it, it's what Winston Churchill said. He said, courage is rightly esteemed the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all the others. Courage has to be the, the foundation of our lives. What is courage? Um, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to move forward in spite of fear. You're not ever going to be free from fear. David wasn't free from fear, I'm sure, but he was confident in the Lord. And the more we practice courage in the little moments of our lives, the better chance we will have of finding courage in the big moments in our lives. It is recognizing and embracing the possibility of danger. And even the possibility of death, as we walk in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that sounds too far-fetched, you think you're sitting here thinking death, really? Well, understand that generations of Christians have gone before us and shed their blood for the sake of the gospel advance. Even now, around the world, our brothers and sisters. They walk in obedience and faith, sharing the gospel, know that it, it, it will cost them their lives to do so. A man or a woman who will face the odds, stand in defiance of evil, and press on, taking whatever comes, that person is embodying courage. That's, that's courage. Carl Baker said, courage is armor a blind man wears. That callous scar of outlived despairs. Courage is fear that has said its prayers i love that line courage is fear that has said its prayers the source of our courage is not ourselves it's the lord so we have to decide to be courageous we have to we have to enact our will and then here's number 2 we must always remember that as christians we're never alone you may feel alone you may feel isolated you are not alone the christian life is not supposed to be this rogue gunslinger wandering the wilds, aimlessly looking for bad guys to fight with. We have the body of Christ. We have each other. And I wanted to say this really plainly and clearly. If you're not developing relationships with at least some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're sinning against the body of Christ and against Jesus who gave us the church because we need each other. We need one another, especially in these days. We need each other we really are better together we need one another in the body and on top of that listen we have god in us we have god it's not like david it's not like all the old testament saints of old who experienced god coming upon them for a season and the spirit would depart we we've got the holy spirit in us that's a down payment uh, paul says on our inheritance now i don't know if you have spent any time pondering that reality the, the, the Spirit is in you right now, if you're born again, that that's merely a down payment on everything that God has waiting for you in eternity. That blows my mind. I, I think about what the Spirit does in my life and how He works in my life and what He's how He's spoken to me and through me and all of the things He's manifested uh, in, in my family. And I'm just like, I'm overwhelmed. And it's just a sliver. It's just a sliver. It's a down payment. It's earnest money on the purchase. There's going to be more, so much more. Truly eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. It's amazing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, we got to firmly decide that we're going to be courageous, that we're going to uh, constantly remember that we're not alone in this fight. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the body of Christ with us. And finally, we have to remember that the Word of God is essential if we're going to do valiantly. The Word of God is essential. Uh, you know, I read this passage earlier, Joshua, in, in, in Joshua 1, Uh, and the Lord's telling Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, you need to meditate on it day and night. You need to get it in you, okay? So you be careful to do everything that's written in it. Now just, see, God didn't say to Joshua, I want you to memorize scripture so that you know it and you can recite it so that you get candy at Awana. He said, I want you to memorize scripture so that you can do it. That's the true test of whether we know God's Word, is whether or not we're going to do it. I've known Christians who could spout off Scripture, who never shared the gospel, never ministered to anybody. And I'm like, that's dangerous, folks. Do you know that's dangerous? Because the more that you have in you, the more that you know and understand, the higher your level of accountability before God. It's dangerous to know As much as you can know about the Christian faith and about theology and about all these things and not to engage in obedience. It's dangerous. You see how essential the word is in all of this? In Matthew 4, you know, Satan is... We talk about chutzpah. (laughs) When you tempt the Son of God with the word of God, that's just like, who does that, right? But in Matthew 4 you know he's being tempted by satan and jesus answers satan he says it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god the word of god is our life and so all all three of these things that we just talked about right we we said we have to decide to be courageous we have to remember that we're not alone and and, and the word of god is essential to us and all of that this manifests in valiance, value, merit, worth, this idea of virtue and courage and valor all being blended together. The, the Lord has to add this to us, but we have to ask him for it. And I get it right now. I get it. Like I'm in the grocery store in the middle of the week, just like you are. I'm going places all over town, just like you are. And I'm looking around and I'm trying to train my brain even more to, to think all, the, all these people may be lost and on their way to hell. How can I make an inroad in this moment? How can I share the love of Jesus right now? How can I step through my fear? And you need to know, even as a pastor, full-time pastor, I have fear sometimes about engaging people with the gospel. The question I'm asking the Lord is, how, how can I step through that fear by faith and engage in some way just to move the ball down the field just to, just to get conversation going, just to express the love of God for this person. You and I are going to have to decide to be brave and courageous in these days ahead. I think every person sitting in this room is going to witness the unfolding of events set down in Scripture that no other generation has seen. You and I are going to need to cling to the truth that we're not alone in this world. And then we have the body of Christ globally. We have Emmaus Road locally. Each one of us has the Holy Spirit abiding in us actually. Because the days are darkening very rapidly in the light of life. See, that's the thing. This is our moment to shine. As the world gets darker, we shine brighter by the Spirit of God in us. And we need to become voracious students of God's Word that we might know His will daily, be able to test the spirits, so, so that we can, uh, we can lead people towards the truth of the gospel. And greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Amen. That's right. So listen to me, church. Again, the days are darkening quickly, but God has appointed us for this very hour. Look at this episode with David and Goliath. And, and, and we're not David, <laughs> and right? But there's an element here that we need to glean from. There's, there's a great comfort in this story, in these truths. God did not, listen, God did not appoint you for feudal China in 100 B.C. to be birthed into the Han Dynasty for the purposes of God's kingdom. God did not appoint you to the Middle Ages in Europe for the purposes of God's kingdom. He put you in North America right now for the purposes of God's kingdom. He he chose you for this moment in time and this geography to be used by the Spirit to reach men and women with the gospel. And here you are right now at this moment in time by God's good design. And the question is, are you going to let him use you? Are you going to yield to the spirit, step through our fear, and decide that we're going to be used by God to build his kingdom? Like firefighters searching a burning house until the moment before it crashes in. Like rescuers who search and search all through the woods until the lost child is found. Like warriors who fight until the very last man with the Lord we will do valiantly. Amen. I want us to do something a little different in our prayer time this morning. Usually I just pray and wrap us up, but I want to I want to take those 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 pieces of what we just talked about and I want us to spend just a few moments in prayer right now. So um so I'm just going to lead us I'll, I'll I'll pray and then you spend just a few moments praying and then I'll give us the next piece as we go forward and then we'll continue with our worship and song. Uh Father, right now we just come to you And we thank you for your word, your word. We want it down deep in our hearts, not just not just to know it, not just to have it wrote in our memory, but to to do it, to live it. And out of that, Lord, we we're asking you this morning um, to help us make the decision to be courageous right now. I just invite you guys to pray right where you are, whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation where you need courage, just stop right now and just ask the Lord the next moment for that courage from him. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have put in us when we came to faith, when we, when we surrendered to you and put our faith in Jesus, you put the Holy Spirit in us. And we're not alone in the fight. And we have this church body. We have one another. Lord, we just stop right now and we give you thanks for all the provision you've provided for us, the, the, the body of Christ, your Holy Spirit. We just want to stop and thank you right now. Let's do that. We ask for courage this morning. We recognize that we're part of a team. Uh, There's more than just us. We we also see, Lord, that we need to be immersed in your word. David wasn't wielding a sword when he killed Goliath, but you've given us a sword. You've given us the word of God, you've given us the sword of the Spirit. And Lord, we ask you right now that you would teach your people how to wield it. It wouldn't just hang on the wall as a decoration. You would teach us how to use it, to know it, to memorize it, to embrace it, to do it, to obey it. Lord, we ask that right now. We know that with you, we will do valiantly. We're just expressing to you this morning a heart that desires to be used by you in these days, in some capacity, for your kingdom purposes. We don't even know what that could look like, Lord. Whether it's a conversation on the sidewalk in front of Hagen, whether it's uh, pulling over to help somebody with a flat tire, Lord, whatever you have for us today, we just want to walk in faith today. We want to be used by you today. And we affirm the truth that with you, Lord, we can do valiantly. And we want to be found courageous and valiant in these days by the power of your spirit, not according to our flesh, not according to our efforts, but according to your spirit. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. We are have to go to God's word. For our definitions of success and failure, especially when it comes to this thing called the Christian life. Remember that success is walking in faith, which manifests in obedience. And failure, well, failure is not failing to accomplish a task, it's failing to engage at all. The Lord needs to add this to us, but it's up to us to ask him for it. And we need it right now. We need it at this very moment more than we ever have before. You and I are going to have to decide to be brave and courageous in the days ahead. You and I are going to need to cling to the truth that we're not alone in this world, but that we have the Spirit and we have one another. We must all become voracious students of God's Word that we might know His will daily. So go from here this morning with courage as you make Jesus known to your neighbors and to the nations. Because with the Lord... We will do valiantly. A Maestro church, you are sent.